Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. The following is a broadcast from the Global Authority in Mixed Martial Arts. The Shoot Radio Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Vault. Okay, we're not actually in a vault. We're in the normal studio we record in every day. However, I did click my mouse over to an archive and pulled the file and said, damn, we need to play this again. What am I talking about? Well, uh, if you live under a rock or you don't know what's going on, let me fill you in. Daniel Cormier is the new UFC heavyweight champion. He stopped Stipe Miocic at UFC 226. If you also don't know this, you might not know that Daniel Cormier is the light heavyweight champion, making him a simultaneous champion. And uh, it's crazy. Daniel Cormier doing big things here uh, in 2018. I mentioned the year because on this broadcast, we're going to go back and look at an interview done with Daniel Cormier by my favorite radio host in mixed martial arts, Jack Encarnacio. Jack had a chance to chat with the eight- and oh, Strike Force heavyweight Dan Cormier. DC was getting ready for his semifinal bout with Antonio Silva, part of the Strike Force World Grand Prix. This interview conducted all the way back in September of 2011. My microphone sounded weird there because I had to turn my head. But yeah, September 4th, 2011 is when this interview originally aired part of the SureDog Radio Network Rewind. Daniel Cormier talks about a lot of things, a lot of things that tie in incredibly well with what is going on right now. DC talks about his introduction to amateur wrestling and basically how he thought he was going to be a pro wrestler and how he wanted to be a pro wrestler. And what I saw on Saturday night... He might end up being a pro wrestler. Brock Lesnar in the octagon, pushing DC. Kayfabe is alive and well, ladies and gentlemen. If you don't know what Kayfabe is, you might want to go check out Jack and Curnicio's Lapsed Fan Wrestling Podcast. If you know what Kayfabe is, you definitely want to go check out Jack and Curnicio's Lapsed Fan Wrestling Podcast. That would be available at soundcloud.com forward slash the lapsed fan. DC also talks about some tough times in his life. Losing his biological father at a young age, tragically murdered, and also tragedy struck when Daniel Cormier had a baby daughter and he lost her 
very young, in a horrific car accident. DC talks about those struggles in his life and how largely wrestling got him through it. At 8-0, Daniel Cormier was a hot prospect. Now, seven years later, almost seven years later, he might be the greatest heavyweight of all time. So let's jump in the vault. Let's literally hit the rewind button and play an interview with Daniel Cormier. Long before anyone called him a champ. Well, he was a regional champ. Jack gets into that as well. Here's Daniel D.C. Cormier from his September 4th, 2011 interview with Jack and Cornicio from the SureDog Radio Network Rewind. And now, the Sunday sit-down with Jack and Carnacio. Welcome back to the SureDog Radio Network Rewind. I'm Jack and Canarcio. It's once again time for the Sunday sit-down, and joining us tonight is Daniel Cormier. Of course, he's an undefeated heavyweight mixed martial arts fighter set to face Antonio Silva in the semifinals of the Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Prix coming up Saturday, September 10th in Ohio. He's also one of the most decorated wrestlers in the game, a member of two U.S. Olympic teams, an NCAA Division I runner-up wrestler at Oklahoma State, a top-five wrestler in the world almost every year he competed internationally, and he's already won two heavyweight MMA titles in his eight-fight career. It is our pleasure to welcome one of the most promising heavyweights in mixed martial arts to the program tonight, Daniel Cormier. Thanks for sitting with us. Oh, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, let's tell the folks a little bit about uh, Daniel Cormier coming up in the world. We know that you were at least born. I'm not sure if you grew up in Lafayette, Louisiana. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your childhood, your surroundings, what it was like coming up as a youngster. Oh, man, it was great. You know, I had a, a good upbringing down in Lafayette. I was born and raised there, man. I lived there from when I was born until I was 18 years old when I left for college. You know, I, I loved it, man. From a big family, uh, uh, it was my mom, uh, my stepdad, uh, Percy Benoit, me and my uh, two brothers and my sister. You know, I'm from a four-kid family. Big, huge family that gets together very often. You know, a lot of support, a lot of love. Uh, didn't always have everything we wanted, but we definitely had everything we needed. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it was just great. It was great growing up in Louisiana. I, I love everything about it. What was the, the town like, and, and what did your parents do for a living? Um, my mom did housework. Uh, my mom did housework my whole life, as most women in my family did. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad worked for the city of Lafayette. Um, uh, growing up in Lafayette, it was cool. It was hot. Uh, kind of, it's like the third or fourth biggest city in Louisiana besides Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and Shreveport. Um, cool. Real Creole, real Cajun, known for its food. It's called the Hub City. Uh, great food, man. Great, great growing up and big people, big football, big football and baseball and basketball community. So wrestling wasn't, uh, wasn't like anybody's first choice. I can't say I still hear the Louisiana accent, though, on you, Dan. Did you lose that at some point along the line? Oh, yeah, man. I've been going. I left Louisiana in 1997, and I haven't lived there since. You know, I was in Oklahoma for, uh, shoot, honestly, I lived in Oklahoma from 1999 till 2009. You know, so mm-hmm. I, haven't been, I haven't been home since 1997, any kind of consistency. Uh, longest I've been there was two weeks just after my last fight. How can you trace your ancestry? I mean, when did, when did folks in your family come to America? Do you know that far back? No, I'm not necessarily sure. You know, all I've, I've known is just uh, a, a people from Louisiana, you know, 
to my grandparents and, and great grandparents. I'm not. I've never really done a, a, a trace on, on where my family came from and when they got to America. I, I wish. I wish I would. Honestly, I think I do need to take the time to do that. Well, Daniel, one of the things that that's known about you and your story um, is that when you were seven years old, your father Joseph was shot and killed on Thanksgiving Day, 1986. And um, it must have been, needless to say, a jarring thing to go through at that age. I mean, what is your memory of that? It's not clear if you were, like, around when it happened or or what that was all about. I mean, what do you remember from that day? You know, like, my mom and dad uh, divorced uh, before I was born. And, um, you know, he was around sparingly. You know, I remember, I recall that, you know, in terms of growing up. But in terms of the day of him dying, you know, I can remember it vividly. You know, it was, uh, we were at my aunt's house, my aunt Marjorie, uh, we called her Aunt Cook, and we were having Thanksgiving dinner. Everybody would get together, like I said, we got together often. And uh, I remember them calling the phone, you know, house phones, you know, back in the day. That's all people had, no cell phones or anything. And I just remember my mom going, just going crazy, yelling and screaming and crying. And then them rushing her off and rushing my old brother off to go and, and, and check what was going on. But um, uh, the crazy thing about that whole situation, Jack, was that the guy that killed him was his new father-in-law. You know, his new wife, his uh, second wife. It was her dad that killed him on Thanksgiving Day. You know, and uh, I just remember that. I just remember it being a tough time for me because my grandmother uh, died right after that. Mm. I can't imagine. So it sounds like, Daniel, and I was never clear on this, you weren't in the home where the shooting took place. Oh. Your mom heard oh. about it via the phone and had to had to run. Yeah, she had to go and get to the uh, hospital and everything uh, as soon as possible. But no, 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 I wasn't there. Uh, we were at my aunt's house having Thanksgiving dinner. You know, he was with his, uh, with his second wife and, uh, at the time. You mentioned your stepfather right off the bat, Daniel, and talking yeah, about your background. Dad. At that point, how close were you to your biological father? Uh, uh, my stepdad, Percy uh, Benoit, is my father. You know, he's, he's been there for me since I was a kid. He was there uh, whenever uh, my dad wasn't. He was good to me. You know, him and my mom had my, my younger brother whenever uh, I was uh, three. You know, and she got pregnant for my younger brother. And uh, they've been together ever since. You know, they got married in 2005. Yeah, you know, after all those years together, and and he is my father, man. He taught me, he taught me everything. He taught me hard work. He taught me how to be a man. He taught me how to be a dad. You know, like I don't know, and I will never this this uh, talk bad about my real dad, my biological father. But uh, I'm not sure what part he would have played in my life had he not uh, passed away. You know, because uh, Percy Percy Benoit is is and and has always been father to me you know and i don't think that would have changed even though my dad was there you know a lot of people will step up in the face of of a tragedy like this you know and and but he was already doing it you know he was already playing the the role of my dad and my father before that pardon me daniel for not knowing this uh is percy still with us yes he is yeah he's still here him and my mom are still down in louisiana man rolling it rolling rolling you know kicking doing good you know they're doing well i was with him for two weeks a hard-working man, you know, took me to work when I was uh, 13 years old, started teaching me how to how to hustle, because that's what people do in Louisiana. They hustle jobs, and they work. When my dad's not working for the city of Lafayette, he was either doing cutting grass somewhere, you know, to make extra money, or, or uh, putting, me, putting me at work at this uh, little pizza joint called the Lisa, 
I'll leave these pizza away. You make 50 bucks a night washing, washing dishes. You know, he taught me to work, man. Taught me to work hard. Taught me to hustle. Hustle, even even uh, even in the pizza shop. Talk a little bit about. Well, first, before we get into your teenage years, I, I wondered if if you ever resolved to find out, or if you even really cared to know, what circumstances led to the shooting. That's such a drastic thing for a seven-year-old to hear. Were you ever interested in finding out why the, the trigger was pulled that day? Uh, just the last thing I heard was that it was just an argument. You know, stuff happens. You know, like I've had I had a cousin. You know, like. Uh, shoot another cousin mm. due to an argument, little money owed, and the kid died. You know, so now you've got a mom and a, a mom, or uh, yeah, a mom of a of a of a, of a deceased cousin uh, is her brother is the dad of the guy that pulled the trigger. Mm. You know, so it's just family arguments. But down in Louisiana, and I'm not saying it's no different than anywhere else, but in Louisiana, you know, like where where we're from, it it, it just got a lot. It would go a lot further than most places. You know. And I think that's what happened in my dad's case, too. You know, I think him and the guy might have started arguing, and a guy told him to get off of his property. He didn't. And, you know, like I said, you know, where we come from, it, it just goes a lot further than most places. I'm not from the best place, man. You know, Louisiana, uh, where I grew up, uh, it, it wasn't the best place, you know. So um, I just had a good, strong support system that allowed me to get out of it, you know. And, and my younger brother, you know, he... Uh, he did well, and my, my sister, you know, she went to college, too, and graduated, you know. So it's just a good support system actually got us uh, out of the situation. I think we attribute a lot of that to my dad. You know, my mom, obviously, but my dad, too, played a huge part like he did. It's amazing, Daniel, because, and I don't know to what degree you're familiar with the circumstances, it's almost exactly what happened to heavyweight fighter Justin Eilers. Really? Yeah, yeah father-in-law um, shot him on a holiday in the house. And it was, it seemed like just a, a family argument. And, uh, yeah, the mixed martial arts world lost Justin on Christmas, I think, two years ago. And yeah. uh, it's amazing sometimes the backstories and, and the tribulations and things like that. At which point in your life were you in a position, Daniel, to actually share that story? I mean, I know it's been part of your biography going back to, you know, when people were writing you up as a member of the U.S. Olympic team. It's not something that came out in a MMA interview exactly. I mean, when... When did you first find yourself actually talking about such a painful memory? Um, you know, it, it kind of all got jumbled together when I was going through my college years and stuff. You know, people would ask about my hardships and and everything, and, and you know, I talk about it. But but you know, as sad as it is and as hard as it was, you know, like I said, you know, my father, you know, it, it's not like he was he was there every yeah. day, so I was able to discuss it more freely. You know, and I was my dad, like, if Percy would have died, and, and that would have been a, a lot tougher for me, I can honestly say that, that it would have been a lot harder uh, dealing with his death. And, and honestly, I was young, too, you know, so I don't know how I would have dealt with that if I was a little older. It was harder for my brother, uh, who's uh, 44 years old now, because mm. for the first 12 years of his life, he had my mom and my real dad together. Mm. You know, so that death was real hard on him, whereas uh, I was seven, and uh, my mom and Percy had been together since I was two. Right, so that is what you knew. Um, you mentioned hustling, working hard as a teenager in the pizza shops and stuff. Tell us a little bit about the odd jobs coming up in Louisiana that you did. Oh, um, you know, I never had a full time, a real job until I was seventeen because I was so into sports. So my dad taught me. He goes, "Listen, you're not going to sacrifice your sports to actually get a job because what are you going to make five dollars and twenty five cents an hour and, and 
and give up opportunities to go to college and all that other stuff? No. So I had odd jobs. Um, they had a cemetery that we would cut, the whole cemetery, push lawnmowers. We'd push those lawnmowers and cut grass uh, every week, once a week, and I got $40 a month. So $10 a time I cut that grass. And then on Friday night, I would go and do uh, at the pizza shop, you know, so I got $45 a night for doing the dishes there. So uh, those are, and then I cut my aunt's yard, she'd give me 10 bucks here, or uh, I'd do stuff like that all through, uh, all through, I never had money, but it didn't matter because I was so busy doing sports, and I didn't have much money. I'd have uh, $40, you know, maybe make uh, 85, 90 bucks a month, you know, because like, uh, it was 40 bucks from the, the grass, and and 40 bucks uh, every couple of weeks from the pizza shop. So, hey, I'd make 120, 140 bucks a month. And I was fine. I mean, I didn't I didn't have a car until I was a senior. You know, so I didn't have to buy gas or anything else. You know, my mom and them bought me clothes at the beginning of the school year. And uh, I had enough. So when did wrestling come into the equation for you? Because as I understand it, your older brother was a pretty good wrestler, and you actually had a chip on your shoulder about that and weren't sure you wanted to go at the same but, sport um, he did. That's my younger brother and me. Like, my older uh, brother was a basketball player. Like, mm-hmm. it was my younger brother didn't want to wrestle because of, like, me. He didn't want to go to college and everything. He wrestled in high school, two-time state champion and everything, but didn't want to pursue it because there's a lot of pressure on him down in Louisiana. There is no wrestling. You know, when, when, when I, I was the first guy to ever All-American at a national tournament from Louisiana, first guy to ever be in the NCAA finals, first All-American in college, first Olympian, and, they put a lot of pressure on him that he just didn't need it. He didn't want to deal with it, so he just didn't do it. You know, he didn't go to college, and it was unfortunate. But and we both started wrestling at the same time. I think I was around 11, 10 or 11, and he was a little younger. And, and uh, I started wrestling right around that time when I was right around uh, middle school. So come middle school, you, you, you step on the mat, and it's got to be an interesting choice because, like you said, it rest, Louisiana is hardly a wrestling hotbed. Um, yeah. So what actually brought you onto the mat? Why did you pick that sport? It's crazy, man. Like, honestly, like, some of this stuff is so, it's, it's been so dumb and made up, but it's, I promise to God, this is the truth on everything. My, I lived across the street from the high school. Like, I, I moved, honestly, we lived three yards from the high school. And when we played football, it would be right across the street from the school. So me and my friends would kick these in the front at the, uh, in a little pasture right around the front of the school where they had a couple trees and stuff like the, uh, you know how those schools may have like their mascot like in the front of the school, mm-hmm. like a statue or something? They had, right. well, they had like this, this, this uh, concrete statue of a Viking, and I went to Northside High School, the Vikings, and we'd play and kick footballs and play all day, and uh, one day me and my cousin PJ, uh, we were wrestling and playing football, and you know, you always start fighting and tussling around, and the high school wrestling coach, he just started a youth program, and he was driving back home, and talk, and he just started talking and going. He goes, you know, you guys are from here. You know, you, you can go left or you can go right. This, I, I have no idea what made that man stop. And he goes, you guys should try wrestling. He goes, you, you know, you're young, you're athletic kid. Give it a shot. And uh, we were fighting, man. We went in there and, and thought we were going to do some WWF. And dude told us to get in the referee position, hands and knees and mugs. was like, what in the world is this? You know, so you... but we stuck with it. I stuck with it. We all started, and everybody... Uh, uh, quit. My friend, my cousin PJ always makes fun of the fact that he was 0-18 and 18 in our first year of wrestling. He's all, man, I was 0-18 my first year. He goes, I couldn't win a match. And he stopped after that year, but I kept doing it. And, and I just loved the sport. Didn't have much success in the beginning either. I used to compete all the time. But then uh, as I got older, I got better. 
So you did fit Daniel into that category of kids in middle school that walk into the wrestling room thinking you were going to throw the trunks on and do some body slams and suplexes and drop kicks. Man, because the thing is, I was such a hyper kid that my mom actually would put old mattresses in our backyard and let me wrestle on them, me and all oh, my yeah. friends. We'd have old mattresses, and we'd wrestle. We had cardboard box belts and stuff. You know, if you got a hold of some glitter, you could really make those belts look good. <laughs> but we did that all the time. And, and I love wrestling. And that's what I thought I was going to be doing in there. But it was, uh, it was so far from it. Oh, of course. I mean, you know what's funny is the reason I say you fit into a category is because really until the ascension of mixed martial arts is a real way to make money in this country in what, late 90s really and through 2000 and especially now, a lot of kids got into, you know, I'm talking about not just kids, I'm talking about collegiate champions, I'm talking about Olympians in some cases, got onto the mat for the first time because they were fans of pro wrestling as kids and kind of got the signals crossed and thought one had something to do with the other. And so for so long, Daniel, I mean, that was a career track right into pro wrestling. You weren't aware of that, though, at the middle school level, were you, that if you actually had an amateur background, you might actually be seen more favorably as a pro? Man, all I wanted to do was wrestle. All I wanted to do was become a pro wrestler. I mean, that was my life goal. But then, you know, when it changed, 1996, man. 1996, Atlanta Olympic Games... Kurt Angle, Tom Brand, Kendall Cross were all Olympic champions. Mm-hmm. And I got to watch that. And as I sat up in the middle of the night, 3 o'clock watching Kendall win his gold medal, I said to myself on that day, I said, man, I'm not doing anything until I give myself a chance to experience what these guys are experiencing. Like, I mean, there's nothing like it. You know, going to the Olympic Games and, and winning. You know, my ultimate goal was obviously be an Olympic, Olympic gold medalist, world champion. Didn't reach that. But I honestly said back then, I go, I'm not doing anything until I give myself a chance to do that. Well, it must have been a trip then, Daniel, once you made that that resolution to yourself, seeing Kurt Angle win gold at 220 pounds in 1996, to then see Kurt Angle two years later or three years later become one of the biggest stars in pro wrestling. But it was, you know, because I had never seen anybody. Nobody from the wrestling world had done that before. Mm-hmm. Nobody had really went over and become one of the top pro wrestling guys, but my goal was to be the best and experience that pride that I felt that night watching those guys with the American singlet, running around with the flag, Kimball Cross, going crazy. It was just, that was my ultimate goal. You know, the wrestling dream kind of died as I got older. You know, I didn't really want to be, become a professional wrestler anymore. I, I, that goal kind of died as I, I became older. You know, I still enjoyed watching it, but it wasn't my goal anymore. My goals were to... Try to wrestle, you know, try to wrestle at the highest level. Let's jump ahead just quickly for this, for the sake of the idea of professional wrestling, because, man, in some way you were a pro wrestler, right? Real pro wrestling, the league that uh, that was launched to kind of feature uh, amateur-style wrestling, freestyle wrestling as, as a spectator sport with teams like the IFL had. It had a TV deal. You were a champion in, in Real Pro in 2004. Uh, what do you make of that experience in your life? That That's a, a resume point that, you know, you have, Mo Lawal has, and, and it was yeah. a strange little thing there in between pro wrestling and MMA almost. Real pro wrestling was great, man. Like, um, it was the first time that we had saw big checks. You know, we hadn't, uh, we, we wouldn't normally see big checks in wrestling. You get paid, but it's all broken up over time. Uh, it was great to be on TV, you know, have a TV deal and everything, and, and to do things that we love. You know, those guys really put a lot of time and effort into trying to build that thing. 
I wish it would have stayed a lot longer. You know, it gave us a chance to make money and, and try to make wrestling exciting with the new rules that they had uh, come up with and everything for spectators. Uh, it was sad when it didn't work out. It, one of the founders of the league, um, Daniel, uh, Toby Willis, was, was doing interviews when the league was founded in 2004, and he said, wrestling desperately needs to rebrand itself as a martial art, not just another huh? arbitrary sport. We need to use military terminology and martial art vocabulary. We need to teach it as self-defense. So instead of the high school coach walking up to a kid in the hallways of school and asking them to try wrestling, they should ask the kid if he wants to learn self-defense. What kid says they want to be defenseless? Then when the kid shows up for practice, the coach has to teach wrestling from a martial arts perspective. That was some forward-thinking perspective for 2004. I mean, considering how wrestling was you know, such a dominant aspect of MMA, yet MMA wasn't nearly as popular when real pro wrestling was founded as it is today. I mean, do you think wrestling can be sold to the youth of tomorrow as a self-defense art just as much as it can be a, a sport to compete in? Now it can because of mixed martial arts. Now it can be sold as that because of mixed martial arts. Because MMA is so popular and because now as you watch, so many of the dominant champions or your top fighters, I'm not talking about just, just champions. I'm talking about the top five fighters in the world, each division. So many guys have wrestling bases that um, it can be sold as a martial art now. Especially the kids say, hey, if you aspire to be like Cain Velasquez, if you aspire to be like George St. Pierre, you have to learn to wrestle because it's the basis for which these guys fight. And now you can get kids buying into that, and the kids will want to wrestle. It, it, it's, the, it's the truth. You know, it can be sold as a martial art. Going back to uh, you picking up wrestling in middle school, then in high school, and obviously excelling to the point, like you said, where you were pretty much the standout wrestler anybody had seen come through the, the halls of high schools in Louisiana. You, you clearly had potential, and you ended up at one of the most prestigious universities in the country for wrestling, Oklahoma State or Oklahoma University. Was it OU or Oklahoma State? Well, man, Oklahoma State, that is a mistake you cannot make, dude. Well, that that's that, that's why I stopped myself, Oklahoma State. Um, that, is, that is something MMA fans have to become familiar with the more they learn about a lot of the top guys that are coming into the sport now with just sterling wrestling backgrounds. Yeah. But, you know, as a Louisiana kid um, that had, you know, he had a high expectations, but, I mean, how did you end up at Oklahoma State? I mean, how did that come together? You know, I had a pretty good high school career, and then I was at junior college. I did well. You know, I won two national championships, and big guys are good. Big guys are kind of tough to come by sometimes. You know, and when John Smith uh, started recruiting me, you know, I've been talking to everybody else, and I've been talking to Iowa and and uh, Nebraska and OU and everybody else. And when I started talking to John Smith, it was that one guy that made me think, man, I want to be this guy's pupil. I want to learn from this dude because this dude is hands down the best American wrestler we've ever had. And he didn't sell me on becoming a national champion. He hit that trigger of becoming a world Olympic champion. If you want to wrestle post-college, Daniel, you need to come to Oklahoma State. We've had an Olympian in every single Olympic game on the wrestling team. He goes, and we, we give you the best opportunity to do that. I was like, man, this dude had me hook, line, and sinker from the moment I saw him walk in with his little swagger. Don Smith has swagger. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't if pardon me if I'm mistaken again, Dan, but isn't um, he also the coach that Randy Couture cites as instrumental in his career and one he, he credited for the uh, the low single on James Tony. Yeah, he is. He's a guy that, that Randy looks up to. He's a guy that Moe looks up to. Mark Munoz, Johnny Hendricks, Shane Rolla, Jake Roshaw. So this goes on and on. And, and that's, that's the only guys that fight MMA. We're not talking about guys that, that are uh, just still wrestling and trying to become Olympic champions. Everybody wanted to be John Smith, man. 
he's the guy that just sets the standard. He always has and he always he still has. You know, nobody has reached the level that he did. Nobody has won four world championships in a row in two Olympic games. Back to back. Well, with John Smith, what does he think of MMA? Do you talk to him about that? You know, initially he wasn't very fond of it because we were losing guys. You know, we lost Johnny Hendricks, who we all thought should have kept wrestling. We lost Jake Rochal because we all thought we should have should have kept wrestling because MMA is mm-hmm. going to be there. And uh, he wasn't speaking too favorably of it, but now his stance is softened, and he supports us. I think it's just that he supports things that we do. You know, he's a caring guy, a guy that cares about his athletes. It's not you go to Oklahoma State and they forget about you. You know, he cares about his athletes, and he cares about the things that we do. So uh, he enjoys watching MMA. What do you think about things that can be done to keep collegiate wrestlers in the Olympic pipeline as opposed to gravitate to MMA? Because there's a lot more short-term money in MMA, quick money, as compared to, you know, going to the Olympic Training Center and torturing yourself for hopes of a gold medal? I, I think they, there's uh, USA Wrestling, they're taking the steps to uh, prevent that. You know, they've got some things in place, the Living the Dream Medal Fund, where you make more money. Uh, they're getting some sponsorships tied into it. And uh, you guys are now uh, able to make a little more money, even more than three years ago when I was wrestling, you know. So uh, they're taking the initiative. But um, I think it's tough. These guys need to be given a lot more financial security. You know, guys are, are busting their ass. It's the hardest sport in the world, man. And uh, yeah, I don't think guys are uh, compensated as well as they should, but I think USA Wrestling is now taking a step to avoid losing their top guys. You had mentioned John Smith as, as one of the greats to step on the mat. Uh, in 2001, you went all the way to the NCAA D1 Finals, Division One Finals, and you faced Kale Sanderson. Kyle Sanderson... Um, is widely regarded as one of, if not the greatest collegiate wrestler to ever live. So you didn't really draw the, the easiest hand there in, in being able to claim a D1 national title. Uh, tell us a little bit about Sanderson, what you remember about the match, and, and what's special about him. He's like one of those guys, man. Like I always say, Floyd Mayweather, Anderson Silva now, uh, Kill Sanderson. Those guys have figured out their, their respective sports. You know, they, they figured it out. He figured it out. He is hands-on the greatest collegiate wrestler we've ever had. Um, but, you know, he, like you said, I didn't get the easy way to an NCAA title. I didn't. But wrestling Kale eight times in college did allow me to become an Olympian and compete with the world's best because whenever guys were beating kids from Missouri and uh, beating guys from Oklahoma, beating guys from, you know, so I was wrestling an Olympic champion four or five times a year. You know, so it, it helped me prepare for post-college, you know. Listen, competition makes you better. And I've wrestled the best all the time. So, Kale's the greatest college wrestler, hands down, that we've ever had. He's competing again. But he's got to be one of the favorites to win the uh, World Championships here and the Olympic Games next year. Yeah, it's amazing that after coaching, uh, I believe it's Penn State, to a title and, and transitioning into a, into a coaching role, that he's now just deciding for the heck of it to get back into the Olympic hunt. It's going to be a phenomenal thing to watch. What do you remember about your match in 2001 with Kale? Was there a moment during that match, Daniel, where you were like, wow, that's why this guy's the best? Did he pull anything swift on you, or was it just a general sense of the match? No, he was just able to control a lot of things. You know, if Kale didn't want to wrestle me on the feed, he would take me down and hold me down. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just he was good everywhere. You know, he's great in positioning, uh, great cardio, hard worker. Nobody outworks the kid. I mean, I remember at the Olympic Games in 04, we'd be done training, Walking over to the cafeteria to maybe have lunch or dinner, Kale would be running, running sprints and laps on the, on the track, you know. He just had it figured out, man. It's just, these guys come along every now and again, and they just have a knack for the sport and everything. You could, 
it's like seeing a basketball goal when those guys say they're in the zone. You know how they say they're in the zone and they can make right. every shot? Kale was always in the zone. He was always on because he prepared himself that well every time. Now tell us a little bit about post uh, NCAA life because then obviously you entered international competition, uh, got you know senior national title, got a world championships berth. Uh, you did tremendous at the U.S. Nationals. Um, Hello. You had you, you had your eye really on the on the Olympic prize at that point. Talk about what that point was like in your wrestling career. Oh, it was great, man. I started to I started to actually realize my potential by making these U.S. teams and stuff. And I'd never really got to the top at, at, at any level, you know. So by working with Coach Smith and, and Mo and Munoz and those guys, I started to realize my potential. And it was just so much. It was such a privilege and privilege and an honor. I'm sorry to represent the U.S. You know, even now, you know, I represent American Kickboxing Academy and Zick Entertainment. When I was wrestling for the World Championships in the Olympic team, I was representing the whole United States of America. So I went from Oklahoma State to representing the un- the whole the whole country, and it was just a privilege and an honor for me. And it was at this point, Daniel, where you got your media training, because I noticed even when Strikeforce first signed you, they were one of the first. You were one of the first fighters they would bring out for press availabilities and things, and it's very clear from our talk this far that you're very quick with words and have a sharp tongue. What do you ascribe that to? Why, why do you have the gift of gab? I mean, we did, we did do a lot of media training, you know, before the Olympic Games. You know, that's something that uh, the USOC, they do a great job of it. You know, we want to present ourselves as Americans uh, as smart, intelligent people, you know, so we train for it, you know, and college. I mean, I went to college. I took, I took speech classes, you know. I, I did the things that... That, uh, that that I had to do. You know, I, I, I learned to, uh, I want to present myself in a respectful manner. I don't want to be a guy that's just out there running his mouth talking nonsense. I want to think things through before I speak them, and, and uh, I want to be respected for, for not only being a good fighter, but as an intelligent person. In, in the midst, Daniel, of all of this, um, putting together your Olympic aspirations, you, of course, made the team in 2004 in Athens and represented as a heavyweight um, was another unspeakable tragedy in your life. Uh, in 2003, you lost your three-month-old daughter in, in a car accident. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, not just what happened that day, but how you can come out of an experience like that, sounding still today so, so optimistic and positive. And I'm sure that was, that was rock bottom. Oh, it was the toughest thing I've ever dealt with, hands down. Easiest thing, easily the hardest thing I've ever dealt with. Um, it was hard, man. I took some time, but and to be honest with you, wrestling, man, wrestling got me back into into the world. You know, I was I was three weeks. Honestly, I was a, when she died. I was a week away from competing in the 2003 World Team Trials. You know, so I had to pick myself up six weeks later and uh, try to make that world team. You know, I could have just forfeited the spot and not worried about wrestling, but it meant so much to me to wrestle in New York City at Madison Square Garden in September that year that uh, Coach Smith told me, Daniel, listen, I understand this is hard. I cannot say I feel which I can feel for you. I cannot say I know what you're going through. But you have to try to get back on the horse. This was after three weeks of just sitting in my room, just nothing. Black curtains up so that I couldn't see the sun. It was just it was just a tough time for me. But uh, he asked me to get back on the horse. I went back to work uh, and was able to kind of occupy my mind. But um, it, it was extremely difficult, man. I still don't, to this day, I don't think there could ever be anything that's going to measure up to the sadness that I felt because it's almost like you want to question why, you know, for someone so innocent, a baby who hasn't done anything wrong in this world, uh, for something so bad and tragic to happen, you know, but you got to remember, man, you're never given more.
more you can handle. You know, you got to just keep on plugging away and try to find the positive in it. You know, I know every time I compete that my daughter, Kate Nimmer Cormier, is with me. You know, she's with me every time. When I go into the cage, when I wrestle in the Olympics, every time I do something, she's right there with me. You know, so you try to find the positive in every situation. You know, even in the darkest times, you try to find something positive, man, that can actually propel you to try and do great things. Well, it seemed like just a great thing that you were right in the middle of, you know, Olympic team trials and you could have such a quick turnaround because uh, it's it's sort of a compelling image, Daniel, you, you drawing the curtains and just resigning yourself to the world. I mean, we all go through grief. Few of us, though, can can go through something that dramatically grief-inducing. Grief I mean, what when you're in that dark room, what's what's the purpose? Uh, why why hold yourself up like that? Is it because you don't want to face the world? Is it because you don't know what's going on? I mean, what goes through one's mind in that dark room? The world's ugly, man. The world's ugly. It's like, why? 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 How could this possibly happen? Like, why? Like, how could this possibly happen? It's like, it's like you're mad that it happened. You question it. Then there's blame pointed at everybody. It's like, it's just so, it's such a dark place, man. It's like, it's sad, but I think you have to go through it. You know, if you would engulf yourself in other things from the very beginning, it messes you up. And listen, even though I, it's six weeks, you said a quick turnaround, but even though, like, for two years, I had to see a sports psychologist. I would cry during training sessions whenever I'd lose wrestling matches in practice. Like, it was just a hard time for me, but drawing that was just kind of sitting to myself thinking, how could that happen? You know, like, like, like I just want to close my eyes and just, dream and, and kind of just rewind, hit rewind, and hopefully I don't have to feel this pain no more, because there's no pain to describe what you're going through. Like, it's really, you can't, there's nothing, I, I broke my arm, man. The bone was sticking up against my, my, my skin, and I had to get on the plane and fly 10 hours back from Belarus to the United States to have surgery. Nothing. There is no pain. It's the pain in your stomach, in your head. It's just a full body pain that you're like, why did this happen? can't wrap your mind around it, man. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Well, a lot of times folks talk about athletes that go through tragedies like that and, you know, how they use that tunnel vision on, on their athletic pursuit to help them deal with it. I was interested to hear you say, Daniel, that, you know, when you'd lose a match, you'd break down crying. And I wonder, is that something physical that you feel and do you realize it's still grief from your daughter? Or is it just that there's this extra weight and there's this extra emotion to everything you do? Or are you conscious every second you're wrestling that that it's your daughter, that, that the loss of your daughter that's causing that grief, or does it just suddenly hit you and, and you almost have to explain to yourself where it came from? You know, I had to I had to let it go, Jack. Like, for a while, I said, everything I do from this moment forward is for Caden Cormier, and if I don't succeed, I'm letting her down. And every time I lost, I felt like I let her down. So at some point, talking to the sports psychologist, she had to help me and learn that, Daniel, your daughter will be proud of you for accomplishing the things that you've accomplished up to this point in your life, much less what you're going to do in the future. You know, so it was like I had so much pressure on myself to succeed because I did not want to let my daughter down. But in reality, I had to let it go. Like, I had to know that, yes, I can compete for her, but I have to know that um, even though I'm competing for her and in her honor, she's part of me regardless. And that day, um, there's been some... You know, some detailed report of, of kind of what happened. It was an 18-wheeler on a highway. But as I understand it, Daniel, she was with her mother, and there was this 
this last minute change of cars because there yeah. wasn't air conditioning in her mother's yeah. car and what what was the circumstances that day? It's just it was that like uh, you know her mom was down in Texas with her and um, they were driving from one place to the next and uh, her mom's air conditioning went out and she was like well can you ride with uh, can you ride drive my daughter here you know it was like maybe a hundred mile trip or so and uh, they got hit from behind you know I guess they pulled off to the side and um, when they got back on they were driving and somebody just kind of ran right to the back of them. you know a guy driving mm-hmm. an eighteen wheeler. You know, it's unfortunate, you know, like, I mean, it was hot, you know, so her mom made a smart decision. Let me put my daughter in the air conditioner. And uh, it's just all those things that go through your head as, as you thinking, why did this happen to me? You know what I'm saying? Because, like, why couldn't she have just been in the car with her mom? Right, when the right. Happened? But it's like, you can't really question those things. You know, it's just so, so bad, sad. So she, she got, your daughter went into a car with someone that her mother knew? Like yeah, relatives or friends or something. Friend. It was her mom's best friend. Oh, I see. I see. So yeah, how was how was she? As I understand it, your daughter was was the only person to die in the crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The girls were hurt. They were injured, but uh, daughter was the only one uh, to pass. You know, it was it was sad. You know, I, I I don't wish that anything happened to anybody else. You know, I just wish everybody would have came out of it um, okay. But unfortunately, you know, that didn't happen. And that's got to be part of what you've been saying, Daniel, is that, that question of why. I mean, you have adults in the car and you have a three-month-old, and, and the three-month-old perishes and the, and the adults live on. That, that's gotta, that must have been going through your head as well. Oh, I mean, it's a whole bunch of questions, you know, but then you don't want to become that, 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 that bitter person that, that wishes bad on, on other people. And, you know, because as I was feeling, I would not want that, that pain on anybody else because regardless of whether or not those girls are 25, 24, 23, they still have parents, you know, and, and their parents losing a kid is is the same, you know. I would not want that, uh, I would not want anybody to experience the pain that I felt uh, uh, when my daughter passed away. Mm-hmm. What happened to the truck driver, the, the person that hit the car, anything? No, you know, I mean, uh, nothing happened, you know. I think he got, might have lost his job or something, but, you know, there's not, I don't think there's much that happens in those situations, you know. I, I actually did not, uh, I didn't really think too much about those details because it just makes you mad. What if he is still driving trucks? You know, then it's just something that, like, what's this guy's punishment for actually killing my daughter? Right. You know, so I don't, I try not to think too much about stuff like that. Understandable. Well, you had um, another child, a son, yes. uh, in February. Yes. He's and right I wonder what too. that was like for you. It, it's got to be, ha- having lost a child at such a young age, it's got to be kind of a leap to go ahead oh, and ha- have another. Was that a, a conversation you had to have with yourself? It was unbelievable, man. Like, uh, I'm happy, man. Dude, the dude makes me happy. He's a cute kid. He's got a ton of hair. Little, little Puerto Rican baby. Ton of hair. <laughs> Cute as can be. You know, his hair's all slicked back right now. He's an unbelievable kid, man. It makes me so happy. You know, Jack, the funny thing is, I was scared, man. I was scared. When my son was born, it was, I was happy, but I was also so scared, Jack. Like, uh, the day his mom and I, his mom, uh, my girlfriend, Selena, we were leaving the hospital. And we're driving in the car, and it's a rainy day, just, just gloomy, rainy, man, and, and I'm just so afraid. And back when my daughter was alive, she would cry, and uh, I would put on Heather Headley, I wish I wasn't. It was a song she liked. She would, it would always calm her down. I would drive her in the car and she'd listen to that song. And, uh, you know, I'm driving home, 
that day in the car. And I'm just sitting there looking at my son. He's tiny, you know, little baby, so cute. Him and his mom are in the back seat of the car. And uh, I get in the car, turn the radio on. Heather Headley, I wish I wasn't, was on. Dude, started crying, like chills down my spine. I look back in the mirror, his mom's crying. I'm crying. Because to me, it was like my daughter reassuring me that, look, he's going to be okay. You know, I'm here watching over my little brother. And it was just an amazing moment for me that just, like, it rocked me. Like, I actually cried the whole time I drove from the uh, hospital back to my house, you know, because I just wanted to get my kid home safe and get him in a safe environment. And it was like, I was so concerned about it because in the back of my head, it's like, what if somebody crashes into me? You know, I can't avoid that. But that song comes on, and it was honestly like my daughter saying, hey, he's going to be fine. You know, like, I'm watching over him and, and watching over everything that he does. Yeah, it's, I can't imagine because, you know, even if you just get rear-ended and you're fine, you always worry then when you drive about the person behind you. It's just like, it's just, it, it, it's something in the back of your mind. So to have those kind of consequences and that kind of history, I, it, it, it's quite a special moment. So, so that's, that, that said, um, you know, you're, you, you got through that, that situation as best you could, even though it was clearly a struggle. And you made the 2004 Olympic team. You competed in Athens, and you came in fourth place, just short of a bronze. Uh, all told, bittersweet. I'm sure it was an amazing, amazing thing. But you have to have your eye on number one, right, to even get to number four. So, yeah. what are the emotions coming out of placing just below medaling in the Olympic Games? I was tough. You know, it was tough. I didn't realize like what sort of accomplishment it was until months and months afterwards. You know, because you immerse yourself in training to become the Olympic gold medalist, you know? So uh, anything short of that is a disappointment, you know? So, yeah, I was disappointed. And then months and months of people saying, Daniel, you have to realize you just got four. You're the fourth best wrestler in the world. You know, it was hard for me to to, 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 to even appreciate the accomplishment that I had. And now I can. You know, now as I'm older, I understand what a great accomplishment it was. But um, it was difficult, man, because your goal is to actually be the uh, Olympic gold medalist. And uh, I didn't do that. So it was really hard, hard pill for me to swallow. Tell us a little bit about that 2004 team. I think it was a tough... Oh, we had a great team, man. It was uh, from top to bottom, just studs, you know, like uh, from Stephen Abbas to uh, Karen McCoy. Just, uh, I think we had a, uh, we had a great uh, Olympic team. You know, we had Stephen was second, uh, Jamil Kelly was second. Kel Sanderson was a gold medalist. Joe Williams was fifth. I was fourth. And Kerry was like sixth or seventh. So, I mean, we had every one of our guys besides Eric Rowe was in the top seven in the world that year. So, we had a really tough, good team. But um, it was great, man. I, I dropped the ball. You know, the Olympic Games is, is huge. You know, that's why when I fight, fighting in front of a whole bunch of people, that doesn't really matter. You know, I wrestled in the Olympic Games. There's so many people watching the Olympic Games. It's crazy. So, uh um, I, I was in a bronze medal match actually wrestling a guy I'd never beat over the whole course of my career, winning 2-0 in overtime. And uh, the moment of the situation got so big that I couldn't handle it. But then as I moved on in my career, I never dealt with that uh, that feeling anymore because I experienced it, and, and, and I feel like I uh, I got better from it. What's that feeling? What, what was that feeling you couldn't handle? Can you describe it? It's just so big. It's like, man, in the back of your head, you're like, I'm actually about to win an Olympic medal right now. Like, I'm about to do something so big that I can't comprehend it. But it's something, like I said, I've been dealing with it since I was 16. You know, I wanted to be an Olympic champion, an Olympic medalist, do well in wrestling, and have my moment. Because guess what? When you're third at the Olympics, you run around with your flag. You celebrate because you just won the last match of the tournament that you're going to wrestle. 
And I was about to have my moment, and I started thinking of all that stuff, and I just actually gave it away. Wasn't prepared is that, for it. Is that a pointer, maybe, Daniel, that you don't even think about what's about to happen if you can help it until the, the bell rings or the whistle blows? Until after it's done, man. That, that's the best advice I can give anybody. No matter how long you've been dreaming that something happens, don't anticipate it happening before it actually happens because in that moment, you lose track of the task at hand. And, man, I gave it away. I gave it away. I, I wrestled that guy for seven and a half minutes, and he didn't score a point. But in a minute and a half, that dude scored three points to beat me. You know what comes to mind, Daniel, is the Chael Son and Anderson Silva fight. Exactly. I think Chael, I think Chael actually got inside of his own head. You know, he's sitting there going, man, I've been beating on this dude for 22 and a half minutes. I'm about to be the champion. You know, I've, I've stayed out of the triangle choke. I've stayed out of submissions for 23 and a half minutes. And he started thinking about it, thinking about it. I think he got caught. Same thing. It always happens. You cannot think about the end result before it actually is the end result. You can't do that to yourself. It's cheating yourself. Are you putting those pieces together now, Daniel, or do you remember actually watching that fight and feeling you like you could sympathize with I, what appeared happened to Chael? From the moment I got back to the locker room, I was like, God dang it, I got ahead of myself. You know, like sadness, when you're in the hotel by yourself afterwards and just sitting there going, man, I, I came home with nothing. It's like I knew in the moment, dang it, I got ahead of myself. I needed to stay in the moment. Just live in the moment. You don't get outside of it, man. You live in the moment that you're in right now. Don't think ahead of it. Don't think behind it. Just just live in that moment. And uh, that's what I've been able to do. I was facing the same situation in the bronze medal in 2007. Living in that moment. You know, there was a break in the match where I'm up 1-0 with 20 seconds left, and the guy taking injury timeout. And, you know, if that was 2004, I might start thinking, man, I'm about to finally get my medal. You know, I've mm-hmm. been so close so many times, but I didn't. I just lived in the moment, and I was able to get the win and get a world medal. Well, you did a remarkable thing in that four years later after Athens – you made the team again, the 2008 games in Beijing. But another twist in Daniel Cormier's life, it just it can't go easy for you for some okay. reason. And, uh, you know, your team captain, highly highly watched and, and, and scouted as, as one of the favorites in the field for the 2008 games. And on the eve of the games, you have to pull out. Um, and it was due to what was reported as kidney failure. It sound, sounds to me like that was related to a weight cut, perhaps? Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, you know, I, I'm a man, Jack. You know, I live by my uh, decisions, and I made some bad ones with my weight habits and my issues with uh, cutting the weight the wrong way for too long. You know, and um, as I got to the games, I made the weight, step on the scale, and uh, after I was done, got my draw and everything, I go back to the back and start rehydrating, and my body would just not respond, man. I'm, I'm puking everywhere. I'm cramping. My, my, my kidneys are just hurting. I can't walk. It's like everything was just like out of whack, man. So they take me back to the uh, clinic inside of the Olympic Village, and they start trying to take me to the hospital because they're telling me my kidneys are working at like 20% or something like that. It's like something insane. And uh, saying I got to be careful for renal failure and all this other stuff. And uh, they, they made the decision to pull me out of that tournament, not me. I wanted to wrestle. Even the morning of the event, I tried to leave the hospital and go and wrestle, but uh, people from the USOC uh, would not clear me to actually compete. This isn't a decision I made. I wanted to compete. I would have competed like that. You know, after getting bags and bags of whatever, IV and not eating, I would have competed like that because that's how much it meant for me to wrestle in the Olympic Games. But uh, the USOC would not clear me to go and compete uh, because of my issues. Suck. 
Yeah, when you talk about cutting weight the wrong way, Daniel, um, we're familiar with this in mixed martial arts to a degree, but I think it's nothing compared to the weight cutting that goes on in the highest levels of wrestling. Can, can you uh, talk to us a little bit about what that actually means to cut weight the wrong way and how grueling it can be? Oh, it's grueling. It's like losing 20 pounds in four days, losing 20 pounds in two days. You know, it's like it's that type of stuff. It, it's kind of stuff that was uh, that you thought what you were supposed to do in wrestling as a kid, you know, um, like just cutting a whole bunch of weight, like not eating, you know, stopping eating on Wednesday for Wednesdays on Friday, you know, just sitting in the sauna too long, being in that plastic suit over all day and all night, you know, working out three times a day just so that you can eat, being in that plastic suit, sucking off water at too early a stage, all that stuff, you know. Um, honestly, God, honestly, because of my situation, USA Wrestling has adopted new uh, weight-cutting procedures, you know. They make sure these guys are a certain amount of weight a uh, long time outside of the competition, and I think it's a great, great thing. You know, I think that is right alongside the Living the Dream Metal Fund. You know, it's making sure these guys aren't putting themselves in danger uh, whenever they are cutting weight. You know, it's, it's, it's a very, very dangerous thing. Yeah, well, we've seen in high school and college deaths. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's gotten yeah. to that point. We're not just talking about close calls. And uh, yeah. at the time, uh, Daniel, I believe the weight class you were competing in for 08 was, was 211. And today you're around, I think, 248, right? I mean, was that kind of the discrepancy back then? Is that what we were looking at as far as how small you had to get? Um, sometimes, you know, if I wasn't careful at all, I could be upwards of 245, 250 pounds. Um, but for the most part, I tried to stay around 235, 237, 240. But, um, but yeah, I could get that heavy uh, in the offseason uh, if I wasn't training. But I most times try to stay a little lighter. I just would not, I would not bring it down. Gradually, you know, I would just try and suck it down. Why would you do that? I don't know. It was just all I knew from high school. That's how I cut weight in high school, and that's how I always did it. Yeah, interesting. And it's and it's appears like you said the way everybody did it. Do you think now? I mean, it, I think of for example concussions in football and how much more awareness there is even at the high school level and even younger than that about protecting kids and how just even the past generation had no clue about how dangerous some of the ramifications were. Do you see that now with younger wrestlers where they're getting these messages about weight cutting earlier? Oh, yeah, they are, man. I think people are taking it People are taking it serious, man. The wrestling world, the wrestling community, they're doing a great job now of actually educating these guys on weight cutting habits and dieting. You know, guys aren't doing what we were doing back in the day, man. Guys are dieting down their weight and actually wrestling closer to that natural weight, which is, uh, which is a good thing. You know, I, I, I think uh, cutting too much weight is... It's never good, you know, but if you do it the correct way, look at Mark Munoz. That dude hadn't been at 185 since he was a sophomore in college, but he manages to do it because he cuts his weight, he monitors it, and he does it the right way. As long as you do it the right way, you can do anything, I think. Well, you had said after 2004 when you lost um, the bronze medal match, you were in your hotel telling yourself, you know, how could I, I was so close, I almost had it. There must have been a completely different kind of emotion when you never even got to compete in 2008. What's the conversation with yourself like four years after um, Athens? Blew it, man. That was the hardest. That was tough, too, because uh, it's like, man, I was ranked as high as number two in the world at some time, in some rankings at some time uh, in that year. You know, with my bronze medal the year before, it was just like, man, I blew it. I let a golden opportunity slip through my hands. I had a pretty decent draw heading into the tournament. Uh, it just... I let a golden opportunity slip through my hands, and uh, I sat there. I sat there for a long time, trying to uh, 
I sat there for a long time trying to comprehend what I did and what I did wrong. I, I told you, you know, I, I deal with losses and, and things like that, like uh, like mourning, you know. So I sat there and, and so I could finally get it together. You know, I knew that I didn't want to uh, stop competing after a year, but I knew that I didn't want to wrestle anymore. So uh, I found mixed martial arts. Yeah, what a what a transition point that was for you. Before we jump to your MMA career, Dan, and and get you out of here, and thanks for being so liberal with your time. It, it's it's really quite a story. Um, in two thousand eight, you know, you're sitting there and you're saying, "I messed up, I blew it." I mean, are you thinking about meals you shouldn't have eaten? Are you thinking about? I mean, what specifically are the regrets? Just not not uh, maybe not being a little closer to weight, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, I made the weight. You know, it's not like I did. It's not like I didn't make the weight. You know, it's like it's a thing. Like, why now? You know, like why? Uh, why did my body react the way it did now? You know, and that's what the doctor told me. You know, I went to the Olympic training center a year afterwards, and I talked to the doctor because I was still trying to get clearance to actually train and do things. Good morning. Anything? Uh, I'm thinking to myself. You know, what can I do? I want to train, you know, I want to do things, you know, and, and, and trying to get clearance. And the doctor finally told me, he goes, look, okay, now you're cleared, Daniel. He goes, but I wish I could tell you something a little more uh, uh, medical. He goes, but in reality, he goes, your body just said enough at the worst possible time. He hmm. goes, there's, a, there's nothing else I can tell you. you know, he goes, your body just had enough at the worst possible time. And I was like, wow, are you serious? And he was like, yeah, just. The worst possible time your body had the worst reaction. So August 2009, I think, you jump into MMA, training for MMA. Um, did you have that in the back of your mind when, you know, even going into the 08 games, or was it only after you failed to get on the mat that year that you then even started considering MMA? No, no, I, I wanted to compete, man. Like like I said, you know, I'm a competitive person, and I like competing, you know. So uh, whenever the opportunity presented itself, I was like, you know what, man, I've, I've recovered. You know, I got the clearance now to actually start training and doing things. And uh, I want to compete, you know. So with the opportunity to uh, do mixed martial arts presented itself, I jumped all over it. You know, I, I knew I wanted to compete. I just didn't know what at. When it presented itself, Daniel, how, how do you mean? Do you mean, did AKA reach out to you? I always wondered how you actually ended up all the way in San Jose because I think you were based in Oklahoma at the time. Uh, the link is actually Dwayne Bacon, man, my uh, my manager. He uh, he called me and told me that MMA was going to be big uh, in 2001. You know, right after I was done with, with my uh, NCAA finals, uh, he called me and told me, he goes, it's going to be huge. And he goes, you are the guy that I want to start my company with. You know, I'm, I want you to start fighting. I want you to start doing it now. And uh, I'm telling you, it's going to be great. Well, w when I... Uh, He's a wrestler, you know. So when I told Dwayne, I go, I go, Dwayne, I go, man, my goal has always been to be a uh, an Olympic gold medalist. You know, I want to win the Olympic Games. He goes, well, when you're done, call me. And, you know, it's, this is always going to be out here. We'll, we'll, we'll get you set up. And uh, right when I started to do MMA, I called Mo, asked him for Josh Koscheck's number because I knew Koss was managed by Dwayne. Koss uh, gave me Dwayne's number again because I had just lost it. And uh, we got it done. He flew me out here. Uh, I met all the guys, trained a little bit, saw Kane and how good he had gotten, uh, watch how much cost had improved and all those guys, and I go, you know, this is the place for me. And so you jumped right in and began training, and it's been 
an eight no career thus far. Um, you've talked a little bit about, and I think even to this day, getting into the room and, and straight wrestling. I mean, not even necessarily full on sparring, not even necessarily wearing kick pads, throwing punches or kicks, or even rolling much, just wrestling and being completely exhausted against yeah. guys like Kane. I mean, how are you totally exhausted in wrestling in an MMA room and not in, in, in the Olympic Training Center? I mean, how, how does that happen? What am I missing as far as understanding what perhaps is more intense about wrestling in an MMA context than in a straight wrestling as a sport context? No, no, no. It's not tougher. It was just I was doing a different type of wrestling. You know, I had been freestyle wrestling for eight years. Well, you take a guy down and you just kind of lay there until you try to turn him or... Uh... Or uh, the referee brings you back up. Whereas in MMA, I would take these guys down and they would just pop right back up. But, and also, Kane was punching at me, kicking at me. Maybe I wasn't throwing many punches, but I was just trying to take him down. But mm-hmm. He was still kind of throwing his punches real light and kicking real light, you know, while I'm trying to take him down. So we were doing a lot more than just uh, just straight wrestling with wrestling shoes on and everything else. But I was only able to go two and a half minutes most times. You know, I would be so tired, I couldn't even go the whole time. What has it been that you have to train? Obviously, you know you need to train more skills as an MMA fighter and more, more, more varied you know means of attack than a freestyle wrestler. But in terms of your body, you know what what body parts do, did did suddenly perhaps get a workout that never used to in your lifelong wrestling career? It was everything, man. It was just totally different. You know, throwing punches and kicks was just so different than, than anything I had ever done before in my life. It's not natural to fight. You know, it's not like a natural thing to be throwing kicks and punching people and kicking not mm-hmm. natural you know so it just did and it's it's the mental part of it too you know you're thinking okay i want to take this dude down i want to punch this dude, but i don't want to get taken down you know they like i don't want to get punched you know it's it's not natural to actually be uh to be kicked and punched at while you're trying to wrestle mm-hmm. you know so it was a totally different thing you know it it uh it worked a whole bunch of different muscles and it just made you it makes you nervous i think that's what gets you tired is the nerves that are involved so much more than with anything else. Your third and fourth MMA fights were title fights. You won the ex-MMA heavyweight title from Lucas Brown in Sydney, Australia, in July 31st, 2010. And then what, two weeks later, August 13th, in New Mexico, you beat Tony Johnson for the King of the Cage heavyweight title. So you have two belts and four MMA fights. Did you feel like maybe you were moving a bit fast and the hype train was taken off without you being able to control it? Uh, no, not necessarily. You know, my coaches decided. You know, my coaches had decided that it was okay to compete whenever I needed to. You know, I fought in August or September of 2009, and I didn't fight again until March. And then after mm-hmm. March, I didn't fight again until July. So it was almost a year now that I had been training before they allowed me to start taking all these fights uh, back-to-back. I guess they figured I was ready for uh, – I was actually ready for that level of competition uh, at the time where I was, you know, so um, – uh, they were confident, so so as was I. You know, just like now, you know, they're confident that I'm okay. Uh, um, I'm okay to fight at this level, and, and as long as they're confident with me, I, I'm usually okay too. I think you went back to Australia once for XMMA, but I'm pretty sure now with your Strike Force contract, you're exclusive. What happened to that XMMA belt and those King of the Cage belts? Did you return them or what? No, we still got them. Obviously, they've been a. Uh, I still got the belts, you know. Like normally, you win a championship and they let you keep it. Uh, obviously, the King of the Cage, King of the Cage has moved on. I saw that Tyler East that fought someone for the King of the Cage title. So, obviously, they've moved on. And uh, three years ago, I vacated that championship. And uh, I, I actually haven't heard anything from uh, the Australian organization. So, 
Uh, I don't think they would allow me to fight over there anymore. Uh, not that I need to. You know, now I'm at a point in my career where I'm fighting uh, high-level guys and uh, and uh, being taken care of by the organization. So um, there's really no need to be fighting all over the world anymore. Well, if you can pull off a win over Bigfoot Silva on September 10th, um, needless to say, Daniel, you won't have to worry about you know flying out to a New Mexico Indian reservation anytime soon to get some work in. Um, it will be a phenomenal accomplishment for your relative experience level in MMA considering Silva's lot in the game. How are you looking at this fight? Because this is this seems a quantum leap as far as quality of opponent for you at this point in your young career. It is. You know, it's a big step up for me. But I love high-level competition, Jack. You know, like, I, I, I love the Olympic Games. I love wrestling in the World Championships every year. I think it brings out the best in me because I like high-level competition. So um, this doesn't scare me. You know, I, I train with, with the number one heavyweight in the world uh, three, four, five days a week going hard. I train with guys like King Mo. I train with guys like Kyle Kingsbury, Mike Kyle, Mark Ellis. I got great training partners here. So uh, this, doesn't, this doesn't scare me. You know, this is a chance for me to, to, to do better. Listen, like you said, nothing comes easy for me, and it hasn't. But what if all these obstacles were put in front of me to make me stronger so that when this one presented itself, I come out on top? What if this is my time to cash in? That's how I look at it. You know, I've dealt with the obstacles. You know, I've had the ups and downs. I've dealt with the chances that I didn't cash in on. I've dealt with the opportunities that I didn't take full advantage of. What if this is my chance to actually do it the right way? You know, and this is the chance to actually uh, cash in and cash in big. You know, this is a chance to cash in big. So uh, that's how I see it. It's an opportunity for me to do something special. You know, let's say that happens. Let's say the stars align for you, Daniel. You win the Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Prix as a late alternate and just a complete uh, afterthought in terms of the original the original um, tournament participants. It's amazing how many twists and turns this thing has taken. So here you are. Let's say you win. Um, and then you get a few more wins, and your buddy Kane just keeps, you know, kicking ass in the UFC. Do you fight Kane at some point in your life, or is that something you won't do? I'm not something that we 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 uh we talk about as a team. Uh, if we get to that point, you know, we decide. But um, my thing is this though: like, if you're in line for a championship, are you in line for a championship at both divisions? What if I say, okay, I'm getting the title shot? And they say, yeah, you know, you're the number one contender. Okay, what if I say I want to go to 205 let me fight John Jones? I mean, is that still the same? I'm obviously getting the title shot, right? You know, you never know. You know, those are bridges that you cross whenever you get there. So uh, I, I don't necessarily like to think about it too much. We don't really like to talk about it as a, as a, as a team or as a, uh, or as a management firm. You know, we have all the same things. You know, we have the same managers. We have the mm-hmm. same coaches. We fight for the same team. So we, we, that's, a, that's a situation that hasn't presented itself, so we try and avoid even talking about it. You don't want to bring negative things into your camp uh, because how can Kane help me prepare for my, champ, my, my fight and how can I prepare him for his fight knowing that there's a chance, oh, you guys may fight, you know, and whatever. So we don't bring those negative thoughts into our camp. Absolutely. Um, so, so with this said, Daniel, you, you've got the Antonio Silva fight on September 10th. And in some interviews you've done already in preparation for the fight, you made some headlines in, ta- in talking about wrestling and talking about the question that all these wrestlers seem to be getting these days is, you know, how do you regard maybe being bo- uh, uh, re- viewed as less than exciting for implementing your wrestling game, which you're obviously getting better and better at in, in the MMA context. And you said, you know, if, if you have a problem with my wrestling, if you have a problem with wrestling's effectiveness in MMA, uh, learn takedown defense. And 
it's a refreshing thing and it's something a lot of people say, do you understand at all why you even get that question? Because it seems to me that it's to, – to ask that question is to treat MMA as something less than a sport. Do, do you kind of know what I'm talking about there? Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I just think that, I just think that um, I'm not necessarily sure what you means in terms of less than a sport. I'm not sure what that means. I mean in terms of somehow asking someone a question um, of why they wouldn't utilize what they have to win a fight as if, as if someone would fight for another reason. People think that people think that some people some people because I, I don't want to uh, disrespect fans that are well educated and, and, and do understand that guys have to lose use their advantages. Listen, I'm going into this fight with a ton of disadvantages. Bigfoot's bigger than me. He's more experienced than me. He's got better jiu-jitsu than me. And he's got better stand-up than me. He's got a lot of advantages, right? Yeah. yeah. So why not use my advantage? You know, why not? Why doesn't John Fitch use his advantage? Tiago Alves is faster than him. Tiago Alves is a better kickboxer than him, but John Fitch is a better wrestler, has good jiu-jitsu. Why not use his advantages? I don't understand why people uh, expect you not to use your advantage. Hey, if you're a kickboxer and you're good enough to stay on your feet the whole time, I won't hear anybody say, well, he's just a kickboxer. All he wants to do is kickbox. Or he's a jiu-jitsu guy. All he wants to do is get top control and pass my guard. It's unfair, man. It's unfair that because you've spent a lifetime of, of, uh, of wrestling and, and gaining these skills, to ask you not to use them. That's unfair. It's not cool, man. I don't, I don't understand why there's such a double standard in terms of wrestling and every other skill that MMA has. Well, that's true. I mean, when we talk about wrestling, that is the only one that people seem to point to as somehow inherently boring and one that, you know, guys should be trying to adjust. Hey, your teammate, Josh Koscheck, we saw him really consciously discard his wrestling so we could throw haymakers and, and maybe not hear that kind of stuff. Yeah, look at, look, I mean, Koscheck had a great career. But if he was to just continue to wrestle as he had and as he was, he probably, you know, would have more success. You know, you never know. Look, Josh Koscheck has all the potential in the world to be exactly like John Fitch. I mean, they have the same skills. Josh is mm-hmm. even actually more athletic than Fitch. But Josh made a decision that he was going to stand and bang with people, you know. And, and um, it makes it makes for more excited fight. And, and Josh is capable of that. Because Josh has got good stand-up now. You know, but, I mean... It's just dependent on, on, on what you want to do. You know, it's, it's his call. You know, he, he, he does what he feels comfortable doing. This guy's a banger. He's a bruiser, you know, so it doesn't matter to him. But um, I just think you have to use your advantages, man. I mean, don't feel bad for going your whole life doing this sport and getting these skills. You can't, be, you can't feel bad about going to college and having to go to school and go train at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning and go to class all day and train again in the afternoon and then go wrestle two dual meets on the East Coast while keeping up with your schoolwork, or not having summers in high school because you had to go wrestle in Hungary like I did, or go wrestle in Fargo, or go wrestle in Nebraska, or go to Oklahoma, or go to all these camps and clinics. I mean, I don't think you should be punished for putting all the time that we did into actually getting good at that sport. Well, Daniel Cormier, it, it's been an amazing talk and an amazing overview of kind of where you come from and, and, and what perspective you're coming from into your fight September 10th. Uh, leave us with this. You've talked about perseverance. You've talked about you know an honest assessment of of the ups and downs in your life. We've kind of developed here together, I think, in this conversation, a theme of you never having it easy uh, for whatever reason. Those are the cards you've been dealt. Coming into September 10th, you're frank about it. Silva has better skills than you in almost every department besides wrestling. Do you have to deal with self doubt coming in on September 10th? And if so, how do you deal with it? Not a chance. 
I am 100% confident that I'm going to go in there on September 10th and win this fight. Like it, it's just a matter of who I am. I am not going to doubt myself. I gain my confidence by what I do in that gym every day against the number one heavyweight in the world and against all my training partners. These guys have prepared me tenfold for this fight. I have no doubt in my mind that I'm going to go in there and win this fight. I don't doubt myself. I never have, and I'm not going to start now. I train hard. I do everything right in that gym. And by doing that, I'm ready to win. So, no, I don't doubt myself. There is no concern. I, I think I'm going to win this fight. I've worked hard. I've fought eight times in MMA, but I've fought a thousand times before. I've, I've had so much hand-to-hand combat, it's, just, it's insane. Yeah, we look forward to seeing the fruits of that labor. September 10th, as the Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Prix unfolds again, Daniel Cormier versus Antonio Silva in the semifinals. Uh, again, Daniel, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for taking the time and, and helping us get to know you a little bit. And the best of luck on September 10th. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. The preceding show is a TJ DeSantis production and is property of the Sure Dog Radio Network. Its content is intended for private use only.